Hi there, I'm Prativa and I'm a public health specialist. And I'm Danny. I know nothing about public health. We started this podcast to help you navigate through the fire hose of information. Our goal at Immunocity is to speak to the concerns people have about COVID-19 and open up the conversation so that everyone can speak up without being shamed for their questions, perspectives, or concerns. Welcome to another episode of Immunocity. Today we will be talking about history, politics, ethics, and how all of these different bubbles are intertwined with science. And joining us today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Kathleen Baczynski from Muhlenberg College. She is an assistant professor there. Kathleen, welcome. We are so thrilled to have you here with us. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure. Should we start with a brief introduction? We'd love to hear about your expertise and what you've been up to. Absolutely. Well, I have a master's in epidemiology, and then I got my PhD in a program that focused on the history and ethics of public health. So I'm a little bit of a Jill of all trades. I've got some quantitative background, and then I've also got a little bit more on the social science and history side of things. Most of my work has been on injuries, particularly brain injury and concussion in sport. And that's because I'm a former athlete who experienced her own set of injuries in soccer, and I got really inspired to study that as a public health issue. But as you can imagine, the last, let's say, 10 months or so, much more of my work and my conversations have been focused on COVID-19 because that's completely overtaken not just sports, but you know, pretty much every arena of our life right now is the, the top public health issue of the day. Thank you. So let's get started because we have a lot to cover today. The first thing that I would like to ask you is that many have called this this pandemic, the COVID-19 crisis, unprecedented in the history of public health. From a history lens, is it truly unprecedented? And what makes this pandemic different from others we've experienced in the past? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's unprecedented, but I do think there's some unique things about this pandemic. So the ways that I don't think it's unprecedented is Unfortunately, this is not our first experience with a pandemic. We've had other viruses threaten, you know, populations around the world. I'm sure you've heard of the Black Plague being one of those classic examples from the Middle Ages. And then in recent times, meaning the last couple centuries, the the classic example is the 1918 flu. And then even more recently, we had sort of a almost, I would say, pandemic averted, a near pandemic, which was SARS in 2003. So we've had multiple go-rounds with this issue. And similarly, to to take the 1918 pandemic as an example, this is not, not our first experience with major public and social challenges around how do you respond to a pandemic. So back in 1918, there were debates over, do you really need to wear a mask? There were debates over what really counts as an essential versus non-essential business. Should we close the theaters? Do we need to close other institutions? Do we stop the parade? What about schools and kids? So none of those issues are new. We've sort of been through all of that before. On the other hand, I think what's new about our current pandemic, well, we sort of have both good and bad things that are new. Let's start with the bad. I think the bad is we have bigger challenges because we're so much more interconnected today with, with travel, with 
the fact that you can get to the other side of the globe within the span of 24 hours, that's good in most senses, but unfortunately with a virus, that means the virus can move much, much faster than I think it could even have done in 1918. But on the good side of the ledger, we know a lot more about viruses than we did in 1918. They didn't even really know what virus caused the flu back in 1918. Within the less than a year, we not only figured out the virus, we've actually developed and tested a vaccine. So everything I think is happening in sort of much faster time span now than it did in the past. But some of the social questions I think are actually very old. I would also say that the other aspect that's interconnected about all of this is also the role of social media and in terms of you know spreading the different sources, true or false, across at a much, much more rapid, rapid pace. Do you have any thoughts on that role? Yeah, I think that's huge. And I think social media is another sort of double-edged sword where there's sort of to the good and to the bad. So to take a good example, I think we learned what was going on in China from Chinese scientists, from advocates, from people trying to get the word out much, much faster. Whereas if you look back in 1918, I don't really think people in the United States had, you know, a very deep sense of what was going on in Belgium or, you know, other countries. And it would take much, much longer to communicate. You know, doctors in one country might have figured out something that was working, but people in other countries wouldn't have learned from them. So that's on the, the good side. But on the bad side, obviously, it's a lot faster to spread misinformation now. And I also think a lot more people have access to the means of spreading that information. So whereas media was a little bit more in the hands for good and for bad of, of the elite, of people who own newspapers, there was a little bit more of gatekeeping, so to speak, in terms of who could publish things. Uh, now anybody could sort of log onto Facebook and proclaim any sort of myth whatsoever that they, they want about a vaccine and that can spread extremely quickly with very little vetting. I think that's really interesting, Kathleen, because one of the roles that we've seen within this within this pandemic in particular, I think, is that intersection of media, politics, and polarization. So I'm wondering about your thoughts. The better question to start with is, historically, how intertwined have public health and politics been in comparison to how much they are during this pandemic that we've just been through? So I'm, I'm definitely somebody who thinks that public health is inherently political. So if you think of the, just the name public health, the health part is a little bit more on the science side, but I think the public heart part makes public health political inherently because any program you want to implement, any policy you want to implement to affect the health of the community depends in part in convincing the community and that that's politics. And so I think there's never been a time when public health hasn't been political but I think we're sort of seeing a lot of these dynamics really magnified in a, to a certain extent. So whereas politics and, you know, maybe the early 20th century, or we think about the 1918 flu, that there, there were myths, for example, that uh, the virus that caused the 1918 flu were spread by Germans because we were in a war with Germany. So there were all kinds of myths about, you know, Germans put this on a boat as sort of like a biological warfare as part of the war. There really were all kinds of myths that, that did spread, but they, they didn't end up becoming a sort of like Republican versus Democrat, I don't think in quite the same way that we're seeing today in the United States. They, they didn't be, you know, become sort of a tool on social media because there was no social media at the time and spread in the same way. So I guess I'm giving that classic academic answer of like, yes, it's always been political, but it's 
kind of political in different ways now because of the tools at our disposal and the ways that we have political conversations today. I think that's also an epidemiologist's answer, you know, the typical, it depends. <laughs> so that applies in this case as well. I had a question for you re regarding trust. And I think that goes really nicely with, with how public health and politics are intertwined because I just like you think that those two have to go hand in hand, right? If we want policies, if we want programs, if we want any sort of implementation that requires us to work with political leaders and pol politics as a whole. But my question is more about trust. When you have this sort of polarization, does this mean that people become less trusting of science or scientists specifically during times of crises? So how does that level of trust carry within crises versus more quote unquote normal times? Yeah, I think we sort of, we actually have kind of like a long-standing trend of increasing distrust in institutions even before we had the pandemic. And I think your question about, well, what happens in times of crisis is I think those long-standing trends just get further magnified. So we, we have in the last sort of 30 or 40 years, we've obviously seen a lot more polarization of, of our media, you know, whereas there used to be I can speak to the U.S. context, at least, you know, just a handful of TV stations that everybody watched. Everyone might watch CNN or excuse me, CBS or ABC or NBC. Now there's like 50 different you know, TV channels everyone can watch. You can go to your own news sites. So that's all very different. But also in terms of trust, people are sort of obviously more inclined to trust their particular news sources. I also think there's been a decline in, in of trust in politicians, in doctors, in any kind of quote unquote elite and that's happened for both good and bad reasons. I mean, there are historical reasons that distrust of doctors and politicians is very, very much justified. This doesn't come from nowhere. And in a way, there's been a positive trend in the last 30 or 40 years of sort of addressing some of these historical wrongs or bringing them to light and confronting them. So that I think is on the good side. On the other hand, I think we've also seen a very opportunistic doctors and politicians and other figureheads take advantage of that distrust to, to spread misinformation, to, to sort of achieve particular political goals. So it's become much, much further magnified in ways I think it's obviously been quite harmful in terms of our ability to respond to the pandemic. Yeah, I, I really appreciate your ability to look at both the good and bad sides of these questions, because I think you're very right in saying that the, the mistrust does come from a place that is genuine, but can't be broadly applied. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think historically, and then in your experiences through this pandemic, the last 10 months, what is the best way for leaders to strike the balance in incorporating science into decision-making? It's a really good question. I think one of the one of my recommendations, at least for pandemic decision making, is that the voices people should be hearing directly from are people like Dr. Fauci or other kinds of infectious disease experts or public health officials. I think it's really harmful in a lot of ways when the face of the decision is just the politician. It's a lot easier to become more mistrustful if you're a Democrat and it's a Republican governor telling you what to do, or if you're a Republican and it's a Democratic governor telling you what to do, or whatever the, the particular affiliation may be, I do think it's a lot more effective for somebody who isn't in that same kind of political role, who can come at it from, you know, I have a particular medical or public health background and training, and here's the advice to act on. In a way, I actually think it 
ought to make it easier for the politician because then the politician can say, you know, this wasn't my idea. This is, you know, science speaking. I think it actually strategically, politically can be helpful. But unfortunately, that's frequently not what we've seen. Another thing I do think is really important in terms of trust and role modeling is for the politicians to actually follow the guidelines they're giving to people. And we've seen over and over again, politicians saying avoid non-essential travel and then hopping on planes or don't eat with people you know outside your household and then gathering for some kind of party with their donors or whatever the case may be that is profoundly i think harmful to public trust because it's sort of sending a message that you know the rules don't apply to me or i'm telling you what to do but i don't have to do it myself i think that's profoundly harmful so i guess my my general recommendations are clear and consistent messaging led by public health and medical experts and politicians actually walking the walk and practicing the guidelines that they're giving to their communities. Yeah, I, I think it's especially really interesting looping back to something that you said earlier about public health being inherently political. I, I agree with you on that point, but I think what I would love to see is a public health space where we can look at public health as inherently political but nonpartisan, mm -hmm. so that we can take information from people based on their educational backgrounds as opposed to where they might sit in the political spectrum. Yeah, I think that's incredibly insightful. I really like that. And I think we can also sort of think about political as, you know, science is obviously never in a, a, a vacuum, but part of the politics is being transparent both about the science, like here's the data we not only do have, but don't have, but then also the values that are motivating the decision. So like part of politics is, you know, right now, I'll, you know, say, for example, our top priority politically might be we want K to five to be back in person. And so maybe our priority if we're focusing on the younger kids who are still learning to read, maybe that's part of why we're explaining that we really do have to be more, more restrictive in terms of bars or, or restaurants. So being transparent of like, here's the value and here's the science, I think is a political thing and it doesn't necessarily have to be a partisan thing. So I think that distinction is a really smart one to make. And that might be something, I actually don't know enough about 1918 politics to be able to make the comparison, but my impression is that this has become much more partisan in that sense. I do think there was nationalism in, in the 1918 response. And as I mentioned before, sort of distrust of other countries, particularly Germany, the context of, of the world war. But I think the partisan aspect is really pronounced right now. And I think you're right that that is an important thing to distinguish from more like generally what it means for public health to be political. I think switching gears a little bit, because I'm fascinated by your background in public health and ethics. I'm wondering when you think about the pandemic in terms of ethics, and I know this is sort of an endless question, but what are some of the things that you're thinking about with regards to this pandemic? And where do you feel like we've really excelled or fallen short in taking ethics into consideration? That's a great that's a great and big question. I guess my first, my first like big picture observation will be that public health ethics is a little different than bioethics. So I'll just kind of clarify, bioethics is the sort of doctor-patient relationship. So that's often what we think about with informed consent, like before you have a surgery or before you have a treatment, 
your doctor needs to tell you the full information about the risks and benefits of whatever that treatment is and get your complete consent. So that's one really important part of ethics that we think about more as medical ethics. Public health ethics is a little bit different because it focuses more on policy. It's more about the community, public health, population health. So the questions there are things like, to what extent can we restrict individual decisions or individual liberty for the benefit of the community? And we've seen that obviously before we even get to the pandemic with things like, can we require people to wear seatbelts in their car? Can we require people to stop smoking in restaurants or on airplanes, things of that nature. Those kinds of policies are what we think about with public health ethics. So, you know, cue in the pandemic, obviously we now have huge public health ethics questions because we're faced with what restrictions can we, we place, what restrictions should we place, and also ultimately we're now starting to see the distribution of a vaccine. That's also a public health ethics question. So some of the considerations in public health ethics, a, a really big principle is something known as the least restrictive means. And that's the idea that you want to do what's effective that still limits people's liberty to the least extent possible. So for example, if it turns out, and it does turn out, that it's extremely low risk to just go for a walk outside without a mask if you're not near anybody, then we shouldn't be giving people tickets or fining them for wearing or for not wearing a mask in the park and they're not near anybody. On the other hand, if it turns out it is really harmful to go eat in a restaurant in the situation where you can't wear a mask and you need to really close down indoor dining, then you are justified in closing down the restaurant or imposing a fine if the restaurant owner doesn't abide by that. So one of the public health ethics principles we think about is how do we achieve our public health goal, which is, you know, preventing disease, while at the same time limiting people's freedom to the least extent possible. So that's one issue. Another really big issue in public health ethics is equity, which is are the benefits of our public health policies being distributed equitably across different populations. Similarly, are the burdens of our public health policies being distributed equitably? So one of the things that really keeps me up at night is that I think right now the answer to those questions is no and no. We have people we're placing enormous burdens on. We're telling people you have to shut down your restaurant and not giving them any financial assistance. We're telling people you need to quarantine and not giving them any support, such as you know, grocery delivery or delivering medications or whatever else they might need to be in quarantine or isolation safely. We're imposing very large burdens without providing the necessary support. And in addition to the burdens not being distributed equitably, I also don't think the benefits are being distributed equitably. It's a lot easier to socially distance if you're somebody like me who has a job that you can do remotely. It's a lot harder to socially distance if you work in a meatpacking plant or if you work at a grocery store. And so it's not equitable to give public health guidelines without also enabling people to actually follow them. So I think that that's a big ethical challenge as I look at our pandemic response that I think we really face right now. Absolutely, and I'd, I'd heard somewhere saying how COVID is almost like a classism experiment where we've seen differences in class 
between people who can work indoors and stay at home and abide by all of these policies. And then we have all of these central workers and they're not just, you know, all the amazing frontline workers that we have, but also people working in groceries and people who are making sure that our society runs with transportation and with everything else that we need. So I think that's, that's definitely something that I think about a lot as well. And the other thing that I think about in terms of vaccine distribution was, I think this was in the New York Times a couple of days ago about when LMICs would receive vaccines. Canada, the US, and some of the richer countries have already taken most of the available vaccines. And what does that mean for the rest of the world who are you know, just as much suffering, probably even worse? When do they get access to these vaccines and how can they even afford these vaccines when cost is such a big question mark as well? Do you have any additional thoughts on that? And I think you, you covered it pretty well. I think my only additional thought is Again, this is you know, a set of inequalities that existed before the pandemic. We already had massive problems with distributing all kinds of preventive interventions and resources equitably. And we often you know, say, anybody, you know, any injustice anywhere is a threat to justice anywhere. That's you know, from Martin Luther King Jr. We also love to say in public health that anybody's health ill health affects my health as well. And that often can seem really theoretical, but I think a pandemic makes it blazingly obvious that yes, other people's health literally directly impacts on your health. You cannot respond to an epidemic or a pandemic if there's a group of people, a country full of people, a set of countries full of people who are still suffering from ongoing transmission of the virus and who don't have access to you know, the vaccine or other required measures. So I guess, to me, the, the pandemic is just magnifying what was already there. And I think the big ethical question is, are we gonna confront those longstanding inequalities or will our response to the pandemic just replicate the inequalities that were already there? And I hate to say it, but so far it looks like we're mostly taking the, let's just replicate the problems that were already there, which is not gonna fundamentally solve the, the pandemic or the other health inequities that continue to, to harm you know, millions of people across the globe. And that makes me really sad too, because when the pandemic first started, you know, there was the whole question or issue of this being the great equalizer, the big reset. And like you said, we haven't really seen any signs pointing us towards that, towards a more equal world. When I think of health system infrastructures in some countries versus others, how can we think about socially distancing or having access to PPEs and all of these other factors and expect everybody with all of these uneven levels of infrastructure to react in the same way and expect the same results. It's, it's really unjust, really. It truly is. And then the other thing I, I will add, I guess, just as I'm, I'm thinking about this is even despite the enormous injustice and lack of resources and infrastructure, there are a number of lower middle income countries that have actually done an incredible job based on the resources they have. And so in many ways, they should actually be a role model to us. I think we could learn a lot from what Rhonda has done, from what mm -hmm. Thailand has done. We actually could learn an enormous amount, partly because those countries have had to learn to make do with a lack of resources. And they've done an extraordinary job that in no way justifies the the inequity but to me it sort of more 
magnifies, we put people in a position of having to, to respond with a relative lack of resources. They're doing as amazing a job in many ways as they possibly could, can. And that makes our own failures even more profound, I think, because we do have the resources that we could be using in a, a much smarter and a much wiser and a much more generous way than what we actually are doing. And it also makes me think of other transnational issues, right? With pandemics and viruses, you cannot have a nationalist agenda. You cannot have a nationalist strategy. It's just not realistic. But it also worries me in terms of our ability to react accordingly for things like climate change. If we can't handle a pandemic, which is, I suppose, a more acute type of event than a longstanding you know, issue like climate change, how are we even supposed to act as a world globally to something as massive as climate change when our response to the pandemic, I mean, it very much depend, depends country to country, but, you know, it's not been a great response to the pandemic overall. <laughs> it hasn't. And it, it, they really are overwhelming challenges, but I sort of don't want to end on like a council of despair kind of note, because I actually think, I do think I see the, the seeds of optimism as well, because I think there's a lot of people, especially young people who are looking at this and saying, this is not acceptable and I'm gonna say something about it. And I think that's, that's what is necessary. I, I genuinely believe in that old statement, power concedes nothing without a demand. And here the demand has to be that health is made a priority. And that depends on, again, it depends on politics. Going back to the, the previous point about public health depending on politics, it depends on groups of people insisting, you know, we refuse to sit by while thousands of people die preventively. The, preventable death. That is not acceptable. We insist on better government. We insist on better leaders. We insist on better decisions. I think that's, that is the way forward, and it's not going to be an easy way forward. It's a really challenging way forward, but we've seen groups of people make extraordinary change, and I think they're capable of doing it again. So that's my note of optimism, I guess. I look at history, and I think, man, people overcame a lot they overcame some real big challenges and they didn't even have the sequence of the virus. <laughs> we have the sequence of the virus. We have social media where we can communicate with each other and coordinate with each other. We have a lot more tools at our disposal. And the question is, how are we gonna use them? How are we gonna use those tools? I'm just going to add my level of optimism in this as well. And that's to see how quickly this vaccine has developed in the sense of the global collaboration. And I think that's one of the things that makes me hopeful is that we are able to work together. It's just a matter of time. It's having the right people, the right timing, the right policies, the right politics in place. But yes, I like, I like your optimistic <laughs> attitude. I'm going to try to take on that some more as well. <laughs> I had two additional questions regarding the ethics of things. One question has to do with the herd immunity COVID strategy. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that, because that's been something that's been quite publicized. It's been in the media a lot. We've seen certain countries trying to use that as a, as a COVID strategy. What are the ethical implications behind using something like this? So the herd immunity, first I should say herd immunity is this idea that if you have enough people who are immune in a community, and the estimate kind of varies that let's say 80% or so, something in that realm, then that will significantly slow down if not halt transmission of the virus. In my judgment, the only ethical way to get to herd immunity is through a vaccine. It's through con 
conveying a vaccine to people and conferring immunity in a way that does not pose the same risks as being exposed to this virus out in the wild. However, as you've mentioned, there has been the strategy kind of put forth by several thinkers and several countries, Sweden being a prime example, has sort of implemented this idea that, well, why don't we just shield the most vulnerable people? So that's people who are older or who are um, immunocompromised or have other uh, particular conditions that might make them at a particularly high risk of severe COVID-19 or death, and then have everybody else go about their business and get to herd immunity through people getting exposed to the virus and most of them won't die, so let's get to herd immunity that way. That idea is profoundly flawed for several reasons. The first reason is that even if I could tell you who was and wasn't vulnerable perfectly, which I can't, there are some 20 or 30 year olds who are getting really severe symptoms, who have lingering problems with their lungs or their hearts for months, and I can't tell you why. Some of them don't have pre-existing conditions. We really just don't know. But even if I could tell you why, I can't really shield the vulnerable people from the non-vulnerable people. And that's because we live in societies. We live in communities. People who live in nursing homes have people who go there every day to take care of them. Those people live with families. Those people go to the grocery store. We cannot build a wall or a moat uh, between the vulnerable and invulnerable. So I think this idea that you can kind of safely get to herd immunity by letting a virus run wild is profoundly flawed. And it also is a big gamble that I do not think is an ethical one. We don't know enough about the long-term implications of a novel virus that's been around less than a year for it to be ethical to expose thousands and millions of people to that virus instead of trying to prevent that exposure. Unfortunately, we definitely know from other viruses, viruses can stick around and they can show up later on in really nasty ways. Hopefully you're not old enough to have had chicken pox, but I'm old enough to have had chicken pox. And that's because there wasn't a vaccine. And that means when I'm older, I could very well get shingles showing back up because I was exposed and, and had chicken pox as a kid. That's the kind of thing virus can do sometimes. We don't know for sure. Hopefully COVID-19 won't have anything like that, but we, we just don't know. So I prefer profoundly object to the idea that we can kind of let this thing run wild among younger, seemingly healthier people and not have that pose severe either short-term and or long-term risks to their health. The good news is we have vi vaccines that are now starting to get rolled out. So once those vaccines get more widely rolled out, that's going to be a much, much safer way to get to herd immunity. And when we have large numbers of people vaccinated, that, I think, is the ethical way to, to halt transmission of this thing. That's actually along those lines, I'm wondering, and we have obviously a lot of questions around how you're thinking about this from an ethics perspective, because I think a lot of it is about what we talked about earlier, which is finding that balance between keeping people safe and not infringing on their liberties. And so how do we find the right balance between us not giving the virus to each other, but also us still being able to lead as normal a life as possible. And I'm curious what you think about this concept of vaccine immunity passports that has been getting floated around recently and the thought around basically hierarchy of access based on whether or not you're vaccinated. 
Oh yeah, I think there's there's some huge ethical issues with that. I think we're going to be in for a really, really thorny and challenging kind of transitional period where we're going to have some groups of people who've been vaccinated, some who haven't been yet. And while I definitely think it is important to, to have documentation of who has or hasn't been vaccinated, that idea of sort of using that to access certain things is, is very, very thorny and, and ethically challenging indeed. I think my my first thought is obviously we we have limited supply right now of vaccine and i think it's absolutely right that in that context not only frontline health workers but the most vulnerable people living in nursing homes people who have other kinds of jobs hopefully that'll also include people who like working in grocery stores and other jobs like that those are the people who get prioritized but the other thing we actually don't know right now hopefully we will know that in a couple months as more research is done we don't actually know if you being vaccinated prevents you from transmitting the virus. That's actually an unknown because the clinical trials right now only can confirm that it helps stop you from getting sick. So our current public health guidance, which is why I think right now what we know an immunity passport is kind of even more problematic in terms of rolling out is even if, even if you're vaccinated, that might mean if we hang out, you could still transmit to me. We don't know for sure yet. So we can't really use the immunity passport right now this idea as a carte blanche to say okay you've been vaccinated you can rip your mask off and you can go eat in restaurants and do whatever you want it, we don't have the knowledge to, to even be, be able to say you can't transmit so instead our approach to this should be let's vaccinated people with our limited supply to protect them from getting sick because they're at highest risk of getting exposed and having severe uh, cases of covid and then once we're able to offer vaccine to the entire population, I think then the ethical considerations will shift a little bit. I still think it's very unlikely, especially in the, a country like the United States, for there to be like mandatory vaccinations. I just don't see that happening. We don't do that for pretty much any vaccine. But what we do, and what I think is justified, is once everyone has access to the vaccine, what we can say is, if you want to work in a hospital, you need to be vaccinated. Similar to, you can require a flu vaccine for hospital workers. If we can offer you the vaccine, you have the option, you have the ability to access it. We can require it for certain jobs or we can require it for in-person attendance at public schools, just as we would require a measles or you know mumps or other kind of vaccine. So that's what I see happening down the road, but that can only happen once everyone has access to the vaccine and we're not at that point yet. So we sort of have several stages of ethical problems, I think, and that's kind of how I see them um, unfolding in the months ahead. I think the way you broke that up is super helpful to think about because there's been so much, I would say, public outcry about the concept of uh, immunity password. And I agree with you. I think we're still very, very far from that. And this is something we've been discussing with a lot of our podcast guests. And I'm curious to hear how you are thinking about this, both as a as a professor of public health, but also you in your personal life with so much changing science, how are you communicating with people who are having trouble keeping up with the science and also mistrusting the science because it does seem to evolve day by day? What's your go-to for trying to explain that changing process to your students and, and friends and family? I don't think I have a single go-to, but I can definitely say the phrase I've probably used more than I ever have in my entire professional life over the last 10 months is we don't know yet, <laughs> which is I think actually really important. I think there's a big temptation in public health, maybe in other scientific fields as well, to talk about all the things we know 
and to give off a really strong air of confidence. But especially with a novel virus that's been around less than a year, I think it's much more honest to say, I don't know, or we don't know, or we can't know that yet, when that's true. And I actually do think it engenders more trust if you're including that along with the information you do know. I'll give an example of where I think we failed, and I definitely include myself in this early on in this pandemic, is we said we don't have the evidence that masks work and we don't have enough masks, so we're not recommending that people wear masks. That was back in February, I guess February 2020 or so, if you, you may remember, you know, seems very long ago now, the World Health Organization was not advising asymptomatic people to wear masks. You know, the CDC was not advising that. And I actually think the, the concerns about the accessibility of masks were very well justified. We did not have enough N95s for everybody. That was absolutely the case. But I think we would have been much smarter to have said, you don't have enough N95s for everybody and we don't have, you know, rigorous studies right now because this virus is so new. But we do know from past coronaviruses, we know from the SARS 2003 epidemic, for example, that, you know, these might actually work. This is spread in respiratory fashion, a mask can prevent the spread of droplets. So if you want to make your own cloth mask, we encourage you to do so. Something like that. And we're going to study that and try to learn more about the extent to which it not only prevents the spread, but also might help protect you. I think even though that's a lot more words to say than just don't bother wearing a mask, that kind of nuance I think would have been really helpful and I think engendered a lot more trust as compared to what actually happened, which was don't wear a mask, now wear a mask, but you can't have N95s. But I think it, it created a lot of confusion and a lot of distrust that could have been avoided. So I've tried to learn from that mistake and to now try to be as honest as I can about like, here's what we know about this vaccine. Here's what we don't know yet about does it prevent transmission? Here's why it's being distributed in this fashion. Here's what we still need to study. Those kinds of things. I've tried to do my best. I still, still think I failed a lot. I still think public health communication is, is failing a lot at this. But I think the, the way to engender trust is to be trustworthy, as simple as that sounds. And if you're being honest about the science and telling people honestly what you don't know, I think that's much more likely to serve you well than acting confident about something you're not sure about, especially when it genuinely might change. And people should know that it might change because we are studying this and it's new. We get new information. It's actually a good thing if our advice changes based on new information. That's, that's how this is supposed to work. But people should be able to see that process happening transparently and not feel like they've got the wool being pulled over their eyes. Yeah, and I do, I very much understand the challenges. I think as someone who's not from a public health background, it's, it's a very tricky balance between trying to appear consistent and give people information that is across the board aligning with what they're hearing elsewhere and at the same time navigating a lot of ambiguity. And I think unfortunately where this has landed us is we do have an environment right now that feels like there's a very much an anti-science sentiment. And I'm curious if you discuss this with your students and what you say to them about working in science in this type of environment. Yeah, I mean, I will say this has been, it's been a really tough environment to be, certainly in the United States as a public health person. I'm sure you've heard stories of public health officials being threatened, even Dr. Anthony Fauci apparently had to have security accompanying him to various locations. It's been very disheartening to feel that, you know, science is sort of 
dismissed or, or treated in that kind of way. At the same time, I actually have been kind of trying to encourage my students as, as rough as the particular circumstances right now, I think public health is an amazing field that has actually done the most for humanity as any field I can think of. And I know that's gonna sound very grandiose, but I told my students, you literally, by staying home collectively, have saved more lives than any individual doctor could save in their entire career. That is not an exaggeration. We have tragically in the United States, we are up to 300,000 people who have died. I promise you we could be at 600,000 or more if we had done nothing. It was individual actions based on public health guidance that saved all of those lives. And I think that's the big public health challenge is actually celebrating some of those successes. It's a, we're, we're only visible when we fail. It's usually bad when we're talking about public health. The good news when we succeed is that you are drinking clean water every day and you don't even have to think about that. You can flush your toilet and that waste is being treated. And those kinds of changes have expanded the human lifespan from an average of 40 or 50 years at the turn of the 20th century to now in many countries up to, to 80 years or so. We've got, gotten so many more years of good life and health, not from fancy you know, X-ray imaging, but from the simple act of just washing your hands, those kinds of things have saved thousands of thousands of lives. And I think being part of a field that can protect human life and well-being on that kind of scale, I mean, I guess it is kind of a sense of mission, but I really can't imagine a better way to devote your studies or your career than saying, I want to spend time trying to protect people so they can have more liberty, so they can live lives where they're, they're, they're not afraid of getting sick, where they can go out and do whatever it is that's meaningful to them. And I think public health has done that in the past century, and I think it has the capacity to keep doing that. And nobody that I know has gotten polio. That wasn't magic. <laughs> it's because a lot of people worked really hard on that polio vaccine, and a lot of people with communication expertise people like yourselves back in the 1950s did an amazing job of getting millions and millions of people vaccinated. They got Elvis up there to get vaccinated publicly. They distributed photos of Elvis getting vaccinated. They had amazing campaigns. And because of that, we don't have anybody in the United States or in most countries, it's nearly eradicated now, getting polio. We can do that again. We really can. Now, granted, some diseases are harder than others to do that for, but that's that's what public health is capable of. So that's sort of my uplifting message is that as awful as many things are right now, there's that's that's what you can do. You can literally make millions of people's lives better. You can eradicate smallpox, you can knock polio out. That is just a joyous thing to me. And that's that's what I hope we keep doing. And that's why I don't want us to give up. <laughs> we can't give up because there's too many horrible diseases out there. And there's too many people who have years of potential healthy life ahead of them. And we want to give them that. I can't think of a better way to wrap up that episode. That was so uplifting. And I feel like you are the professor I wish I had <laughs> when I was going to school. <laughs> that is a wonderful message to give to your students. And I think I feel safer knowing that it is people like you who work in public health. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, to educate us. Really, really appreciate you. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.
Hey there, Danny again. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Stay safe and mask out.